Interesting. How about your last patient? This is a 49-year-old man who I first met in July of 06. He's a father of three girls, lovely wife, very supportive family system, who had inflammatory bowel disease since age 17. Initially thought to be ulcerative colitis, but then with some fistulas, thought this was more Crohn's, managed very appropriately by his gastroenterologist over the years, multiple drugs, seen at an academic institution, multiple trials, was educated about having a colectomy, educated about the risk for colon cancers, and over the years elected not to do that while he had his children. Anyway, long and short of it was getting his routine screening colonoscopies and was found to have a rectal tumor. And this is kind of a high rectal tumor. It was kind of right below the rectal sigmoid junction, but, but still considered a rectal tumor. Someone, if we had seen, who did not have inflammatory bowel disease, we would have certainly thought about or considered neoadjuvant chemo. But he had inflammatory bowel disease with active colitis ongoing. So he immediately went to surgery. He had a total colectomy and his rectum removed. And this tumor was staged as a T3N1 grade 2 tumor with a complete mesorectal excision. And the day I first saw him, which was about two or three months after his surgery, his first comments to me is, I've never felt better in my life. He just felt wonderful without this diseased colon that had been in him since age 17. At that time, though, his CAT scan showed a defect in the liver. It was in a single segment. It was in segment eight, I believe. It was small. It was less than a centimeter. But it was suspicious for something that could be related to his cancer. So we did a PET scan, and this single area lit up. He had a PET-positive scan. And initially we had, this is kind of through a workup, you know, from New York to our office, we initially had started him on Fulfox as sort of an adjuvant program, but realizing that this lesion in the liver probably was his tumor, switched him to Avastin and Fulfox for an additional four cycles. And he had a repeat scan, and this lesion was smaller but still present, and he developed on oxaliplatin a very odd but severe neuropathy involving his left arm. And when questioned, maybe his left leg. I mean, it was not your typical oxaliplatin reaction. Personally, I didn't think it was oxali, but I knew oxali, if he had a neuropathy from something else, was not going to help that. So the oxali was stopped. He was kept on 5-FU, glucovorin, and Avastin. And he saw his surgeons back in New York, particularly this time the liver surgeon, who arrangements were then made to, after the holiday, prepare him for resection of this segment of the liver. And the Vastin was appropriately stopped. His tumor didn't grow. This was done in early 2007. And it was a single lesion, small, confined. It was in that one segment only. And he came back to us. And he had now just received maybe four and a half months of chemo, sort of in that neoadjuvant process. So we finished just Avastin and 5-FU to complete six months of chemotherapy in total for him. And that took us probably to the spring of 07. And then at that point in time, he was followed, you know, as we would all our high-risk patients with scans, CEAs. He was followed more carefully with scans every three months and did well until the summer of 08 when there were two new, very small, less than two. One was two, one was three millimeter pulmonary nodules, one in the left lower lobe, one in the right lower lobe. Uh, repeat scan six weeks later, they were up to three to four millimeters. This looked like disease. And surprisingly for me, a PET scan done showed that those two spots were hypermetabolic and nothing else. So he saw the surgeon again in New York, this time a thoracic surgeon, 
who then proceeded with uh, vats of the left lesion because that was the most peripheral, and then vats of the right lower lung lesion. And through the summer, recovered from his surgery. He breezed through his segmentectomy, and he had a difficult time with these VATS procedures. But he recovered, he did well, and he came back to discuss, okay, where do we go now? So now he's had these two areas that have the metastasis, so the metastasectomies. What do we do in patients who've had lesions removed? So I was personally on the fence. You know, he'd had not a lot of chemotherapy, obviously, but he's had some. He has inflammatory bowel disease, which has been doing wonderful. And I'm of the mindset that, yeah, this is risk. The tumor could come back, but I can watch this with you. But the patient was a very, you know, he's very educated. He sought a couple of other opinions. The people in the academic center really thought he might do best if we treat him. And we all came to the decision, okay, we will attempt sort of a post-pulmonary resection chemotherapy, but we will stop at the first sign of toxicity. So he was begun on Avastin and CPT and 5-FU, and probably only got two and a half cycles, did very well in the first couple of cycles, but then developed severe enteritis, diarrhea, sometimes associated with eating popcorn, which they think caused this obstruction. He did have an obstruction, partial obstruction. It was had to be hospitalized, long and short of it. He recovered from that, and since that time, he has had pretty much issues now with small bowel ileitis. His gastroenterologist, he's been enteroscoped a couple times and biopsies, and he really does have small bowel inflammatory disease. And part of his Crohn's is now on methotrexate and high-dose prednisone. He's tolerating it well. He's off chemotherapy. His CEAs are normal, and his last CAT scans show no evidence of new disease either in the lung or the liver. So the question, one of the questions we talked a little bit about, about options. So we have, you know, our biologics for our inflammatory bowel disease and our anti-TNF group of drugs. You know, I was certainly a little uncomfortable in offering a therapy like that for patients who've recently had metastatic disease. But Axel has some good thoughts about it all. So that's where he is right now. Three years later, he's disease-free. He's off chemotherapy for about eight months now and high risk, but no evidence of tumor. So, Axel, what are your thoughts? I mean, when I saw the patient today, his main concern was his inflammatory bowel disease. He actually said he's never felt as bad in his life. And keeping in mind, this is a patient who tolerated pain, the pain of his colitis, you know, for many, many years because he didn't want to have a colectomy, then was surprised how well he could feel after the colectomy, after this inflamed organ was taken out. And now he says, you know, this is the worst I've ever felt in my life. So this is an issue you just can't ignore. So the theoretical concerns that when you use a stronger immune suppressant like an anti-TNF agent, this might actually activate his cancer for whatever reason. I think they need to take a step back because, you know, right now this patient really needs to be helped. He is in poor shape from his Crohn's disease. And overall, I personally do not really believe that inhibiting TNF for instance, as one of the means that you can do, would ever do anything to his cancer. I don't think that the immune system plays a major role in fighting off solid tumors, and especially not the common cancers, because if that was the case, you know, we would see a surge in these common malignancies in lung cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, in patients who are on long-term suppressants like kidney transplant, liver transplant, heart transplant, whatever, or HIV patients. You know, we do not see 
the significant rise in, I mean, like tripling, quadrupling of incidence in colon, breast, and lung cancer or prostate cancer, we see in these patients with chronic immune deficiencies, we see the emergence of these rare, potentially virus-triggered diseases, but not the solid tumors. So I would actually clearly think this patient needs help, needs standard therapy for his inflammatory bowel disease. And of course, he needs to be followed for his tumor because he's at high risk for tumor recurrence. He had a multi-organ now involvement, meaning bilateral lung and liver. So he's likely going to have a recurrence, not necessarily, but very highly likely. Anything else you want to say about him? You know, he was the only patient who actually came with his whole family, more or less, who actually heard about it and then had talked to him about this issue, and he was really interested in coming. He really wanted to have his case presented in this educational setting for him and for us, I guess, because it's the only patient we had with clear inflammatory bowel disease, which I think is a special subgroup of patients because we talked about these patients. Initially, when we treat these patients, there was some concern, can we use chemotherapy to the same extent? What about the use of bevacizumab with the perforation issues? What about arenotecan? Arenotecan, exactly. These issues, you know, so I think there's still a group of patients where we're gathering information because it's not necessarily the group of patients you would randomizing clinical trials, you know, because you kind of pre-select these patients, especially with active colitis, they would normally not qualify for clinical trials. We talked about my personal experience now with probably two dozen patients that I treated myself or being presented to me with Crohn's disease and a history of fistulas. I did not see any problem with bevacizumab in these patients, which I think is one of the tidbits of information that we are still learning over time. So I think this group of patients with inflammatory bowel disease need to be looked at very carefully. They have a lot of other complications, potential complications. Um, this patient apparently now suffers more from his ileitis than from his cancer. Dan, it sounds like this man has some thoughts that he wants to see communicated to physicians. What do you think that's about? You know, I think his approach, Neil, for this disease had always been one that, you know, I want to be educated, so educate me. And if there's something, anything, that my story can tell that might help somebody else, here it is. So as Axel said, I mean, his daughter was their 18-year-old daughter. I've met all his daughters. I've met his wife a thousand times. And so they're telling their story, and they're not afraid to tell it. He's not afraid of his morbidity and potential mortality from this. But he's also of the mindset, if there is anything I can do, even if it has not been absolutely proven, that might reduce my chances of dying of this disease... Let's talk about it. So the last thing I want to ask both of you is any thoughts or impressions about this experience today? I imagine it's not something you do every day or maybe even ever. What was it like, Dan? Well, Neil, as I was telling Axel, it does give you the opportunity to sit 45 minutes and talk to your patients. I think if you'd ask all the people we talked to today, I think they all enjoyed it. It was time out of their day, their life, but they enjoyed being there. They enjoyed meeting Axel. They enjoyed telling their sure? story. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it was good for me. You, know, right? you sort of look back at it and say, hmm, what was I thinking of when I was doing that? <laughs> Axel, any impressions? You know, I enjoyed it a lot and I learned a lot. And you know, you don't always have the opportunity to sit back and review a whole history, a whole duration of treatment sequences that happened to this patient. Because in clinical practice, what you do, you react to the moment and say, you know, this is the problem we're tackling, this is... So you sometimes forget, you know, why did I do that? And then you recapitulate, and you know, this was a very interesting experience. 
And normally you don't have that much time. And this is one of the issues, you know, we're so time-driven, volume-driven, that we just don't have time to sit down. The questions you ask are probably very different than you normally ask. So coming, going back to what were you thinking at this time? How did it affect your life, your social life, etc., etc.? And there were probably a lot of times when patients told you things you might have never heard before. And so these experiences, I think, are invaluable because I got a pretty complex and complete picture of these patients even just listening to them for 40 minutes. And I also was very impressed in a positive way by the close physician-patient relationship in this situation. I mean, Dan, you're doing an excellent job, and these patients love it, you know, and rightfully so. I think it also showed to me that when we're talking about what Dan does in a community setting, in a group practice setting, you can do high-end treatment decisions. You can keep patients alive. You can, you can have high-end therapy, not only in academic centers. In fact, some of the decisions, you know, because some of the patients went back and forth between him and academic centers, I would have actually rather endorsed him in some opinions, not the academic centers, because you're in academic centers. You don't know necessarily who sees a patient. could be a third-year fellow, you know, making treatment decisions who's definitely not experienced versus community oncologists. 